Hello, I'm Marcus Railton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity's been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. Ridding countries of landmines is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. In spite of this, this week's podcast guest has spent the last 20 years of her life doing just that. Helen Gray hails from East Lothian. And while working for HALO, the hazardous area life support organisation, she ran demining teams in Angola, Colombia and Mozambique. At the moment, she's back in the UK and she joins me today from her family farm just outside Edinburgh. Scots Care. Supporting Scots away from home in London. Hi, Helen. Hi, Marcus. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining the Scots Care podcast. No problem at all. Nice to meet you. Yeah, we're we're recording this towards the end of January and it did occur to me this morning we're recording it on Burns Night and I, I did think, I, I know you've got sheep on the, the farm and are you a fan of haggis? Yeah, I love a bit of haggis. I've, uh, I'm hoping my brother's going to pick me up uh, some from our local butcher today. You know, I was talking to my kids about it. You know, my, my kids are all English. You know, I've been in just outside London for 20 odd years now. So I was saying to my kids, oh, I'll get some haggis tonight and we'll do it. And, and my, my nine-year-old, oh, it's 10 now, Rafe, said to me, what's it made of? And I said, well, you know, and I was trying to remember, it's called the pluck, isn't it? And I was saying, well, it's the, it's the heart and the lungs and the liver. And then they mince it all up. And I just, I was looking at his face and I was thinking, oh, gosh, this is too much information. There's no way he's going to eat this. Yeah, I think I think the the best way to say is uh, explain it is just say it's a big sausage. A big sausage. Yeah, and I was I, the other I was thinking about you yesterday and today because yesterday I got in the car to run the kids to school and it said minus five, and then today it was it was you know a bammy minus one, and I was thinking is that tough on a farm? Do you have to get out, crack it on? Yeah, no. Well, we were um, we were scanning all of my use. So I don't have I have a small flock of pedigree sheep. And they were getting their pregnancy scans last night. But the the last week or so, it has been, it's, it's got much milder. But the last week or so, it's, it's been really cold here. And so then that is extra work, just making sure they're all, all right, breaking ice on the water, extra feed, that that kind of um, thing, just to, to make sure that um, everybody's all right. But yes, yeah, so I had to move, moved all my ewes yesterday morning into a shed so that they could... Um, have their scanning experience and I tell you what the the scanner he came to us at the end six o'clock at night and he did the the 24 U's in in no time at all but he'd scanned 2,000 sheep yesterday um, which is pretty efficient isn't it yeah and do you get to know then and there how many of your 24 are pregnant yeah absolutely so there's um uh, 15 having twins and then um, there's eight singles and there's sadly one that's been pregnant but is reabsorbing. So she's something's happened and she's losing the pregnancy. And then of the singles, two of them might actually be twins, but they're, they're a bit early on. So 
Um, is, is there a number uh, there that is a success for you? Do you, as you know, as a farmer, do you say fifteen's good, but eleven isn't enough? Or uh, they scanned at a hundred and fifty-eight percent. So if every you was pregnant and going to have one lamb, that would be a hundred percent. And if every you was pregnant and going to have two lambs, that would be two hundred percent. And that would be like that's that's what you're going for. So two hundred percent is really brilliant. Uh, but 158 is absolutely fine. And I've got quite a few of my user coming in are first first time mums. So um, that, uh, you know, it, it's all right when they're having a single. I actually do like talking about the farms because they really fascinate me farms. But you came to my attention because of your work with landmines all over the world. And I must say, I didn't know anything. I know about their existence, but it was one of these things until you start to look into it. And when I started to look into it, I was really quite shocked. I mean, how many countries in the world are still blighted by landmines? Oh, gosh, I'd have to double check. Um, but they are still globally a, a, sig a significant problem affecting many, many countries. I mean, the situation has changed a little bit in the last sort of five, ten years with different types of uh, contamination. If you look at kind of um, Syria and Iraq and and changes in Afghanistan, but obviously the the new um, you know massive contamination at the moment is is Ukraine. Um, mm. And you know last last year I was in, um, so I just work as a, a consultant now, and I mostly do do sort of fairly practical trainings. But uh, yeah, in the last year I did a global training in Switzerland, and then I was in Mogadishu, Somalia. And after that in Yemen and then right at the right at the end of the year in in Ukraine. Um, so it is it's very much a, an ongoing serious problem. And I think something that sort of we thought, um, you know, there was been sort of big campaigns and stuff to see the end of landmines by 2025. And, um, you know, I don't think that's really realistic uh, at well, the I moment. Look at the stats. I mean, I, I after I thought, oh, it'd be great to talk to Helen. I started, I, I was on the United Nations website and I was looking at the stats and it says that Egypt has 23 million landmines. And then that's followed by Iran at 16 million. And these are mind boggling numbers. Is is that ever fixable? I know. The thing, some some of those very big numbers, uh, you sometimes have to do the maths on them and they're, they're not, um, they're not totally accurate but i mean there certainly are big numbers and they are i mean it depends how the mines are laid so i worked in in colombia for for two years which had um uh, in sort of 2000 when i when was i there 2011 12 and then i was going back regularly to visit and it had one of the highest accident rates in the world but the number of land mines are relatively low okay uh, tactic that the landmines are used by so they were you know mines were being used by the non-state um actors so principally FARC and the ELN and possibly some narcotics narco sort of groups as well and you know protecting coca crops but also being laid on paths that the military and the the locals would patrol on so they would use only a low number of items, so one or two items, but everything that was laid was laid to cause an accident. So each mine, the percentage likelihood of having an accident is very high. So you didn't have very many mines there, 
but you had a very high rate of accidents. And then yeah. back in the day, I worked in Mozambique, which is, you know, a, a huge achievement in that it's um, um, declared um, compliance with the the mine ban treaty, which was just, you know, a, a real accomplishment for a country that had been um, very badly contaminated. But, I mean, I worked on minefields there where you were looking at, um, you know, 80,000 80, mines um, with about 3,200 mines per linear kilometre of the minefield. So really, really hugely dense minefields going for for, for tens of kilometres. Um, and there's similar ones on the, the Mozambique-Zimbabwe border. And the Zimbabwe border still being, uh, side is still being worked on. And, and there you have really, really high numbers of mines, but to a degree, you know, people have a much better understanding of where the contamination is. So you do still have accidents when people make mistakes um, or are pushed into these areas for other reasons. But the number of accidents in comparison to the number of mines is is much lower because of the the tactics that were used, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose what doesn't help is is the fact that you've got these num that you've got these numbers and that they are continually being laid by, like you say, narco groups or whatever. And the, the, the mines can remain active, I read, for 50 years. When you look at the, the sort of Soviet-era um, factory-produced landmines that you know I was dealing with in places like Mozambique and Angola, and particularly when they were in sandy, sandier soils and stuff, you know, you'd be finding them 40 years later and they look like they'd, you know, come straight out of the factory. Um, you know, which is really, really scary. So, I mean, eventually, obviously, over time, they will degrade, but it's very difficult to, you know, put a time on it. Um, mm. So you're going to be taking your family for a picnic um, anywhere where you think they are. It could be Sunday football or Monday piano lessons. Whatever a child wants to learn after school hours, Scots Care has grants to help cover costs. Parents can't always find the funds for those extracurricular pursuits, but there's a good chance Scots Care can. Where were you brought up? Were you brought up in uh, East Linton, in uh, which, for anyone who doesn't know that area, you're about forty miles outside of Edinburgh. Is that right? About yeah, thirty miles outside of Edinburgh. So yeah, on a on a family farm just outside the village of East Linton you know typical farmers were um you know on the farm most of the time you know occasionally went on on holiday to Aviemore or, or Cornwall or Wales um so yeah very much uh, grew up here and then when I left school at 18 I think 10 days later I was in South Africa and I got off a plane I'd managed to get a job through sort of farming and horse connections and uh, yeah, got off a plane, literally got off the plane and realised I'd been cold for my entire life. <laughs> and, <laughs> I know and that, cold and wet. For a long time. <laughs> yes, I know that feeling. Yeah. And and so how did you go? How did you, was there an expectation that you would you would come back from university and go back into the family farm and that would be your life? So, and so to go from that to... You work for Halo, the Hazardous Areas Life Support Organization. That seems they seem, you know, polar opposites. I wondered how you went from there. And then when you when you I don't know if you had a discussion with your mum and dad or your, your parents, your guardians, you said, This is what I'm gonna do. 
And did they not say, Jesus, Helen, is this really what you want to do? <laughs> yeah. I think my, my mum spent the last sort of 20 years lighting candles every every weekend when she goes to mass. Um, oh, bad, so, yeah, yes. uh, um, how did it all really start? So I was very, so I managed to, before uni, I, I managed to work a bit in um, in South Africa, Kenya and in Zimbabwe. And I, I really enjoyed that. And then uh, went to uni. And when I was there, got um, was part of, so I did natural sciences, so biology and um, biological anthropology. And got to go to Madagascar as part of an expedition um, in southern Madagascar. And so we worked in a, you know, we were really um, lucky and got to work with the Tandroid people in really remote um, southern sort of Madagascar kind of, we were sort of two days walk from the closest sort of small village that a, a car could get into. Um, so it was pretty off the beaten track. And I guess so that through that, you know, had experience of working with people and managing in very remote environments and, you know, actually having to really look after yourself. And uh, from from that job, I got um, uh, after university, I first worked for the Scottish Seabird Centre while looking for stuff abroad. And then I, I ended up running, a, being the expedition leader and looking after a research lodge in the Peruvian jungle okay. in the end, which is brilliant. So you know, amazing experience. Again, you know, eight hours by canoe from Puerto Maldonado, no electricity, no running water, drank muddy water from the Tambapata River for a year. Um straining it through a sort of um large sock would be the best way to describe oh, it did you get ill did you did you stay fit for that year no i know i'm pretty robust <laughs> <laughs> no no i've uh i've had the odd parasite over the year but the, over the years but uh no no been been pretty well and then i when when i was there you know we were doing uh working in in conservation which i absolutely loved and was fantastic but also you know got to work with local communities and that was really interesting and i really enjoyed that that part of it, that part of working with with communities, trying to find solutions. And um, so when I was uh, home, you know, it's like all of these things sort of by mistake, you know, I en- ended up having a pint in the, the local pub with um, a guy whose daughter had been in the, the pony club and I taught her a little bit and, you know, really funny. And he's a, an ex-army major and he was just like, well, what about the halo trust you know do you know about landmines and i said no i don't know anything about landmines he's like oh, i think you should apply to them so i phoned them up and um the the current sort of boss at the time said well um you can come for an informal chat but we don't really have women in the field mm. uh, uh, anyway so i went for an informal chat which was sort of i think a panel my recollection is a sort of a panel interview with sort of 11x uh no nine nine x army officers <laughs> it wasn't that informal oh <laughs> <laughs> man i presume yes yeah and uh, and uh but it was fine it was fascinating and um yeah i think three or four months later i was in the the north of mozambique starting my operational training with halo so you know, when you join the organization, you go through, they've got amazing uh, training for people who come in. So, you know, they can employ people, you know, there's a, in the industry, um, 
quite recently there's many people that come from a military background but there's also lots of people that don't and and i think what you know halo does is anybody who joins you know goes through uh, a very comprehensive training program so it actually means that you can employ from a sort of a wider background you know which is interesting mm. um, um yes yeah, so i did did all my training uh initially in mozambique and then ended up um as a sort of fairly junior person in angola and it all went from there and you sort of suddenly get sort of 15 years on and that was 2004 and you've sort of been in mine action in quite a niche thing for a very long time and that's kind of what you know about listening to you talk you come across as you're a very pragmatic person and a very stoic person and i wonder were you that person before you saw everything that you have seen? And one of the reasons I ask you that is when I went on to the, uh, the Geneva International Centre for Humanitarian Demining website, mm-hmm. and they've got a wonderful video on there, and it was talking about what they do and the benefits of what they do. And they've got a lot of children there in the, in the, on the website film, you know, and I've got three kids, and, and it was talking about the the dangers that these children just wander into minefields or that, you know, the, the amount of kids that are killed by mines. And I felt just watching it from the comfort of my living room, I was completely emotionally overwhelmed. And I, I wonder when you got out there, first of all, have you learned to compartmentalize it emotionally or did you suddenly think this is, this is awful? I think the, I think I remember the very first time I wore the you know the the PPE the the sort of body armor and the mask and like the first time I walked onto a minefield just in a minefield visit you know when you just go and have a a look around seeing all of the other deminers and that just being a very quite surreal experience um yeah but I think I think I've always been I think I've always been very practical and quite pragmatic but um yeah of course these things affect you and I think for for me um one of the 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 greatest things that I've been able to do is particularly working with communities that have been really badly affected by mines and so you know I worked for for Halo for nine years and then I went to the the Geneva Centre but when I was with Halo you know I think of you know there's there's many communities that I sort of think of in Mozambique that are, are hugely special to me because, you know, we worked there and and now I worked with about 600, when we expanded again, about 600 Mozambican staff, and many of whom were from the communities that we were working with, you know, which, you know, improves kind of communication and understanding. But it's that, you know, when you start working on a project and you take away the mines and when there isn't further conflict obviously in their minds they don't come back you know mm. so it, there's peace afterwards you know and that's so within the whole range of development you know mine action can be one of the most kind of rewarding things and there is something hugely special about coming to the end and handing land back to people and knowing that their kids can walk to school or herd the cows without you know you worrying about them running into a minefield because they're trying to stop you know, the kids are trying to stop the cows from running into the minefield, you know, because that's where the grass looks greener. Because um, yeah, I presume the issues don't just end with the danger to people. It must, it must, you know, hamstring whole whole communities because you can't oh, farm, yeah. you can't access water, you can't grow the businesses. 
absolutely it's the it's the it's the whole gambit and then you look at um you know if you're planning to improve infrastructure or put in water or put in electricity you know are you going to do it in the community where there's landmines or in the community where your your workers can operate safely so it affects you know the whole chain of things so the you know it has to the the risk has to be taken away for other development um to happen but the nice thing about mines as long as people aren't going back into conflict is once they're gone they're gone whereas you know the the hugely tragic thing is in some circumstances you know you can see a lot of effort being put in to to build um a school or a hospital but then if the pay you know pay for the teachers stops or or there isn't you know there isn't spare parts for the water pump or you know these things can kind of they can break again if the whole logistic chain hasn't been sorted but if you've taken away the mines at least that bit is done the mines themselves are you objective about them now i mean the physicality of them because as much as they are they're horrific weapons of death but when I was looking at them, I was thinking somebody's thought these up and they're very clever. And the in the video in the, the Geneva International Center for Humanitarian Mining, they were talking about them and the different kinds of mines and one that will jump out, out the ground and then explode at heart level. And I kind of think, I mean, what kind somebody, of monster thinks this up? Yeah, it was somebody who was having a, you know, in brackets, good day in the office. I mean, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? It's just like, oh, well, we'll start with, you know, I suppose you go back to the original mines were effectively, you know, a, a spike that a horse would stand on, you okay. know, back back in the battlefields. And then you have very simplistic, you know, with, with mines, you have antipersonal blast mines. So something that you stand on and it goes bang. And uh, it's not like Hollywood. You don't stand on it and it goes click and you can grab a, a sandbag and slip that onto it because of your foot that 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 only happens in the movies um and then you have you know escalation from that to something more like a grenade on a stick with with trip wires or even um you know can be command operated so somebody who presses a button but yeah so state mines and then then you have directional mines so like in the in the vietnam war movies the the claymores front towards enemies so stuff that puts shrapnel in the in the direction you want and then these bounding fragmentation mines so the which are which are really really horrible so things that sort of jump up and and blow up spraying fragmentation at kind of chest height so that's obviously more lethal and then there's a whole you know there's an increasing ex uh, escalation of of these um items you know which happens i guess with all all weapons of war and it's horrible yes and um and people get lots of money to to develop these things or they did so I, I personally can't imagine you know as you said some that's your good day in the office and then you drive your car home and you eat dinner with your family and your kids yeah, around. Oh, I, had, I really had a really good day in the office today you know i developed something that was really horrible it's, it's just mind-boggling yeah. yeah and can you tell us about the different ways that that you when you initially go into an area and you know there are mines there because i, I read that you can use dogs yeah, you can. So, I mean, what what I've been working on a lot in the, really in the last ten years or more is the 
the initial step, so which is the, the survey. So the, the first steps of survey, the kind of reconnaissance is understanding where the problem really is. So whether it's with landmines or whether it's with other explosive ordnance right uh, uh, across the, the range. And, you know, the, the industry, I guess, if you look historically, a lot of money has been wasted doing the expensive bits of clearing. So where you have people with detectors or with machines or with dogs working on land where there actually isn't anything. And so if you're spending money working on land where there isn't anything, then you're not getting rid of the stuff where it is. And, um, you know, it, it's taking time and it's taking resources. So so I've been really focusing on on helping train people to make better decisions and really try and narrow it down and follow the evidence to where we think the, the problems really are and sort of work from the evidence out rather than taking um, a sort of more conservative approach of, oh, you know, there's contamination everywhere, which doesn't doesn't really help you. Um, so that survey bit is done by speaking to people, by looking at the, the history of the conflict, um, all of the records from that, looking at land use, looking at where accidents have happened, um, and, you know, speaking to the the, speaking to landowners, land users, former combatants, and putting that information all on top of each other and trying to evaluate where where you really think the problem is, and then targeting the the next step. So that that first step is called non-technical survey because you're not sort of intrusively going into an area with a bit of equipment, but it's actually probably um, the most difficult decision-wise. And then you have kind of technical survey and, and full clearance. And that's when you start going into an area with assets that can uh, identify mines or other explosive ordnance. And that could be people with uh, detectors, with metal detectors. So if you're looking for, for mines that have got metal in them, but then you find with a detector all of everything that's metal. So I've spent a lot of I spent a lot of time digging very carefully, digging little holes to find a sardine can, or <laughs> you know, because where, where there's been fighting, you tend to have having soldiers like dropping lots of rubbish as well. So, of course, so yes, pops and yeah. sardine cans and and bullet casings, and you know, you get all this metal clutter. So I spent a lot of my life digging, dig very slowly, digging little holes. So actually, when you spend twenty minutes very carefully digging a hole. And you find a mine, you know, that that feels worth it. Whereas when you've spent 20 minutes very carefully scraping a little hole and you only find, a, you know, an old Coke can, that's quite just quite annoying. <laughs> but, yeah, so you, you've got those sort of like using detectors or you might just be excavating in sandy soils. You can just very carefully scrape or, or rake the soil to see what's there. Um, all obviously done with very careful sort of operating standard operating procedures you know dogs particularly in where there's not lots of vegetation stuff to cut down you know animal detection can be can be really can be really quite efficient but it mm. requires really you know the people running the the training of the dogs is highly skilled and people managing dogs and there's also one organization uses um the cane rats, which I have to confess, I'm as a as a farmer's daughter, I'm always a little bit scared of. I'm just uh, I'm just quite scared of anything with a with a naked tail. 
Um, rats? Did you did you say rats? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. It's a Belgian organisation that uh, uses rats. That they also sniff TB in labs, which is really interesting. Wow. But, um, so both dogs and, and rats. But this is all back. You know that that only works well if it's backed up by a really good system of of training and and management. And um, you know if you have you know you hear horror stories of when you know the, the the dogs are you know once they're trained for explosive detection or or mine detection you know really really valuable and they've got to be looked after well and they need to have you know really well trained people looking after them and you i have had horror stories over the years you know animals that have died because you know food wasn't kept in air conditioned shelters so there can be quite a lot more kind of logistics um mm behind the animal detection but it, it can be really useful because obviously they're sniffing for explosives as opposed to a metal detector that's looking just for for any old metal so it's more specific social isolation is a growing and often unseen problem in big cities like london scots care's leather buddies program matches a scots care volunteer with a client in need of company for a weekly chat to help build back connections if you think you're on your own in London, Scots Care can change that. Don't suffer in silence. Talk to us at info at scotscare.com. Can I ask you, no matter how well trained you are, Helen, and how much experience must be 15, 20 years now of, of doing this, yeah. do you yeah. still do you still go into an, an operational area, like a, a live mine area with fear? And is is it a healthy thing still to have the fear i don't i don't think fear is the the right thing but i wouldn't i wouldn't go going to like visit a minefield that was being worked on if i didn't feel that the operation was being like uh run to proper standards if that makes mm. sense but it'd be like you you shouldn't be feeling fear if if everything is correctly in place but certainly with um with respect and with caution and one of the one of the videos that I watched, what kind of astounded me is they were talking to some villagers, and I, I can't remember in which country it was, but they were the the native people were were very pragmatic. They were very accepting of the situation, and I, I was thinking, can you imagine I was going down the high street to nip to Sainsbury's, and there was mines everywhere. It would be that's just a situation I couldn't possibly ever get my head around. But these people were so accepting of it, and I I wondered, is it because they've they've just had to live with it for such a long time? Yeah, many people do. I mean, it's extraordinary what people, you know, it's a, it's amazing how acclimatized we can become to to many things. Um, you know, which is also quite scary because there's some things you shouldn't become acclimatized to, but you might need to learn to live with. But you know, when you're doing surveys, so the sort of the when you're doing the initial stages and you're trying to figure out where the problem is, you need to have very clear communication with people so that they. Um, you don't end up standing somewhere sort of pretty much on top of mine with a person saying, look, I told you there was something here. Yes. <laughs> um, and because people are often, you know, they're really keen to show you what they know and, and where items are. So you have to make sure that they don't put themselves in risk or yourself in risk. You know, so sometimes people will be like, well, they've seen something, but they would go closer because you were with them because they would want you to to see it so that so that's why you know all the sort of survey work needs to be done really 
carefully and you know you speak to people and you're like you know I, I've been with people before and they're like oh yeah the problem's along this path and you're like well is anybody using that path oh yes no I go along that path and you're looking oh at the path really overgrown and there's no footprints and you're like no, but you haven't been going along the path oh well no well we haven't been going along the path for the last two years because somebody put the mine there and you're like yes but you were wanting to take me along the path there yes but that's because you wanted to know where the mine was and I'm like yes no but we don't need that's fine yeah. you can just say that's the path tell me that it's up there 100 meters or so that's fine we'll just stay here on the safe bit that's quite <laughs> so so it is it is all about you know it, careful and intelligent communication and and you know respect and understanding and asking sensible questions and also not um jumping to conclusions you have teams of all female deminers was that a deliberate strategy to get more women into demining or can you tell me how that because when i read about that i thought i wonder why that was was it just coincidence or deliberate so that was in that was in um so in Mozambique and um after sort of after I'd basically been in mine action for a year, few years you know there was a sort of you know it started to open up more to women and in Mozambique we basically changed our um recruitment changed our adverts um and rather than saying you know we're we're advertising for deminers, you know, we said we're advertising for deminers, men and women can apply. And rather than getting a hundred percent application for men, we got applications about 50, 50 split between men and women. And um, yeah, so there was a, there was a drive particularly coming from the, the donor community, but it was something very much that we wanted to do to get more, more deminers in. And yes, yeah, so I had some of the first, uh, all female teams in Mozambique who were just rock stars to to work with and did an amazing job. Have you been to a place and then gone back and and lost friends over the years through accidents or or being killed by mines? Um, yeah, no, I I know some people who have had, um, particularly uh, yeah, had some colleagues in in Mozambique, um, and yeah, I know of other people who've who've had accidents which is always just heartbreaking. And, and Halo is a non-governmental um, organisation. And I was wondering if there was enough governmental legislation out there to make a difference worldwide. I, I see that the UK government pledged £100 million in 2017. Is that enough? Did that happen? Is that ongoing? Um, I think we would, there's, you know, we could always have more money. Um, it is quite, uh, you know, it is, and it's expensive the the work is expensive by by nature but i mean that's also why as an as an industry and as um you know the sort of big the big organizations which are mostly um, non-governmental organizations like there's two two big ones from the uk which is halo and mag and then there's a very big norwegian one called norwegian's people's aid so mpa and um there's the Danish Refugee Council and some other smaller organisations as well. Um, you know, so there is big donor support, sort of UK, um, US, EU, Japan, um, Scandinavian countries. So there, there is a lot of donor support, um, depending a little bit region to region. So Southeast Asia, you get more support from 
Australia, for example. But um, it is expensive and, and funding sort of changes when, you know, there's lots and lots of funding going into Ukraine at the moment, which is wonderful. But that probably means that there's funding that's dropping away from other places where, you know, the where, you know, we're less interested, you know, as a as a population, you know, we're looking not looking at so much in the in the news. So I mean I was in, in Yemen doing some training um just in, in November and you know there's there's clearly scope for for more work and, and more funding there, but it, it hugely challenging environment to to work in. I was wondering if when you're in the field and you, you work in these these places, these kind of high octane in, environments for an amount of time, and then you you where you where you are grateful to be alive and it's massively rewarding and and it's you know it's just dangerous, and then you come back to East East Lothian and after you've spent all this time in the minefields, is it difficult to kind of culturally readjust? <laughs> And go, you know, go down the shops and look after the sheep and and work on the farm, you know. I don't mean to make it sound like, but is does everyday life in in Scotland almost look trivial? It doesn't look trivial, but it is an adjustment, and it is. I mean, it's been quite difficult. I mean, I I moved, I moved home, uh, sort of properly, kind of six years ago. And I was really, I was pretty burnt out, actually. I'd had a, a really stupid thing. I just, you know, I'd slipped out in love and, and fell down some stairs. I mean, just, you know, doing nothing, going to get some toothpaste. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, having, you know, having sort of competed horses when I was younger and done lots of, you know, physical sort of work and stuff. I just thought, I thought that that hurts, but it's fine. It's just a bit of a bruise. And um, yeah, three months later, I got sort of shouted at by a doctor and told that I'd been running about on a probably on a broken pelvis for three oh months. Oh my word! And, yeah, I know, really stupid in the benefit of hindsight. And uh, yeah, and I'd sort of I had done some quite bad nerve damage in my lower back, and so I spent the, my last two years full time in Geneva, sort of on really strong painkillers, just to. You know, it took, used to take me about forty minutes to get out of bed and put my socks on because you know, I'd slipped down the stairs. I mean, just bonkers. And um, and so I think that you know, I was I was traveling at that point, traveling globally, sort of eighty percent of the time. So I had a flat in Geneva where I effectively washed my clothes kind of twice a month. And uh, and I think that injury took away the sort of extra energy and the resilience if that if that makes sense and yeah, I, just, I totally understand how yeah. where where are you down and and suddenly got yeah got very got very fried and and pretty tired and you sort of realize that you've been running you know running on adrenaline a lot of the time you yeah. know and that that's how you you operate and you function and um and then so it's so now it's sort of been you know I've done a lot of trying to work on creating balance at um and there's probably quite a lot more work to do <laughs> well, it's a big it's a big adjustment you're talking about years aren't you helen in the field and then yeah. you know to come back but i but i go you know so i now sort of i go away and do two weeks training and you kind of click back into it and work 16 hours a day and and really enjoy it and sort of sort of the lights go on you're like 
zoom, 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 and I come back and I think, oh, great, you know, I'll, I can continue working at this rate and there's all this stuff that I'll get done at home and on the farm and and I and I just I'm getting old. I can't do it anymore. You're getting old. Oh my! Don't see you're younger than me. Come on. I have to lie down, go to sleep for about a week. You know, and I think um, and COVID's COVID's been the same. I did end up um, uh, I caught COVID in in Ukraine before before the escalation. So um, so but before the the last year. So sort of two just before. Um, just been co- early, early on in the in the COVID before before we had the the vaccinations and ended up doing sort of eighteen days in a room in in oh, Ukraine, wow. um, which which was quite interesting. If anybody ever gives me any tin tuna again, <laughs> responsible for the consequences. Um, but uh, yeah, I think so. I think I think after COVID, we've been a little bit sort of post kind of little bit post viral you know bit bit of brain fog and it's all it's all a bit harder and I think that is all sort of consequences of you know when you work very hard and it's all about you know your your work is your life and it's all quite sort of encompassing and it is um you know that isn't the healthiest way to be forever and it's not sustainable so you know I'm trying fairly hard to have a little bit more balance and be a bit more sensible but um the people who are close to me would would say that uh, yeah, I've I've still got some work to do. I think it sounds it sounds you're on the right lines though. I mean, what what I'd like to finally ask you is, listening to you, and it's fascinating. It really is because it's another world for me. And a, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I interviewed a guy called Colin McLachlan, and he's a former SES soldier. He was taken hostage in Basra, and he was talking about being in in, in and you know and tortured and and being in Sierra Leone. And towards the end, of, the end of the interview, I said to him, Colin, do you have a faith or are you spiritual? And he said that he's seen the best of people and that he'd seen the worst of humanity. And he kind of and he thought that that was the reason that he didn't have a faith. And I wondered, you know, you, you're kind of similar in the way that you've seen you've seen some hellish things, Helen. And I wondered, do you have any faith or are you spiritual? Do you believe in a bigger power? Oh, I don't know. So I brought up... Uh brought up catholic um but but very much lapsed but uh i don't know there's a you have have moments where faith in humanity is restored and then moments where (laughs) where it's gone again so there's there's something but i i can't really describe it no i think i think that's fair enough it is is you know myself too i have moments where where I am despondent by the state of the world, and then you spend I spend some time with my kids, and I think, oh yeah, there is something greater than myself. But but you're right, and I think you're on your way to finding a balance. And I think because you're in your forties now, aren't you? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So as you're definitely not old, you know. But yeah, <laughs> it is important, I think, as we get into our forties, to find a balance and find what makes us happy. Yeah. You know? But but Helen, thank you for joining me on the Scots Gear podcast. It's been brilliant listening to you. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Great to speak to you. Uh, Hopefully you'll come back again one day. That would be great. Thank you. Bye, Helen. Bye. Scots Care, supporting London Scots with financial grants, welfare advice, counselling, sheltered housing, jobs coaching and family support.